you cast your mind back to the 1990s, you'll recall the pop culture, Cool Britannia, epitomized by bands like Oasis and of course the Spice Girls. You'll also recall Lady Di and the Gulf War. In many ways, it was a far simpler time than today without the pressure of mobile phones or social media. But there was an insidious policy being enacted here at home when the government of the day began to implement the policy known as care in the community. In theory, this sounded a pretty decent idea. In reality, it led to the closure of many psychiatric hospitals with seriously ill patients being put out onto the streets with little or no provision made for them. The effects of this policy lingered on for many years to the detriment of thousands of sufferers, their families and carers, many of whom are still struggling today to deal with a lack of care in our communities. A few good people decided to do something about it, and this is the story of one such person and the incredible impact he made. This is your London legacy, telling the timeless stories of London's hidden personalities. Welcome, Alan, my dad, if I can call you dad, to join me in this conversation. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's quite strange, actually, to have it in a formal sort of interview setting, but uh, we can just relax and have it like a father and son chat. That would be really good. What I want to do is because you have had a very interesting and fascinating life, both in terms of your upbringing, your career as a solicitor, and over the last many years as well, your involvement in mental health charity, your involvement in that. And I want to touch on all various aspects of that, sort of going chronologically through your uh, life and your career and your involvement in charity. You were born to working class parents from Eastern European Jewish stock. I was indeed. My father came, or his parents came from Russia, and my mother's parents came from Romania. So that's correct. And you and you had a sister, you had a sibling, yes, uh, my auntie yes. Rhoda. And where were you born and brought up? What part of London? North 16, Stoke Newington, which is part of Hackney Borough Council, as I believe it is now. So Hackney today is a pretty sort of poor, I would say, working class sort of area, probably similar to what it was in those days. What, what was it like growing up in Hackney in the 1930s and 40s, which is obviously pre-war time? It was indeed, and it was very working class, as you say. So it, it was a tough upbringing, but you came from sort of humble backgrounds with working class uh, parents and grandparents. And my grandfather, Dave, your father was a tailor, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I worked in the East End of London. And yet, from that sort of upbringing, you had good social life, I believe. You had good friends. You enjoyed sport. And well, you, you must remember that I was born in 1936, shortly before the beginning of the Second World War. So my upbringing was right in the middle of it, and there lies a story in itself. So how did that affect you? What, what, what are your recollections of growing up in sort of pre-war and early war time? Oh, lots of recollections. We were evacuated many times because my father was called up in the army, the Royal Army Medical Corps. And uh, fortunately, he was stationed most of the time in England. But whenever he moved around, we kind of evacuated ourselves to wherever he was. And uh, that was very memorable. And later, I recall most vividly the bombing of London and all around our house where we lived by 
buzz bombs, doodle bugs, landmines, and all that sort of thing. So to me as a child, it was very memorable. Must have been a bit scary as well, living through. A bit scary, but also as a child, a bit exciting. No, I can I can see that. But I suppose today, looking back on it, you probably can't believe that you went through it and lived through sort of the bombing of London and having to run around. I think Grandpa was also one of the wardens, fire wardens, wasn't he? He was. They were called ARPs, Air Raid Patrol. And uh, yes, he was. I think somewhere out. Most nights when there was an air raid. And I think somewhere I've got his uh, little badge, his ARP badge that he he gave me uh, many years ago. So you had this upbringing, as I say, from a, a working class, humble background. And yet you... Works, you were very conscientious at school and you worked extremely hard, as I understand it. And you went on to achieve something quite remarkable in that you were, I believe, the youngest ever qualified solicitor of your generation. Is that correct? It is, but you're jumping quite a number of years. Okay, I, so- I uh, was at a primary school until I was 11, then took the 11 plus. And I was very fortunate to be successful in obtaining a place in what was called Hackney Downs Grammar School, formerly called the Grocer's Company, where I spent five very good years. I actually revisited the Hackney Downs Grammar School about a year ago. Uh, if you remember, I mentioned that to you. I went back and had a walk around with the uh, one of the teachers, and it's changed out of all recognition. I think I saw the playground where you used to play, but um, I think where you broke your arm once, if I'm not mistaken. That is right. Playing football, I broke my arm. And believe it or not, I was taken to a local hospital, and they kept me in for a week. Can you imagine that today? No, I think you'd be on the street after about a minute today, which is um, one of the areas we're going to come on to talk about shortly. So after your schooling, and I do want to jump a bit because there's areas I want to concentrate on probably for in a bit more depth in a bit. So you you studied to become a solicitor. You studied from your home. You studied from your flat. How, how, what was your mindset? What, what, what is it that you wanted to achieve when you were... In those days, one didn't have to have a degree as you do now. So I was articled to a solicitor in the West End of London, recommended by my father, actually, and uh, did five years article clerkship, during which time I had to take two law exams, the intermediate and the final, which were both held at Lancaster Gate in London, and I worked from home. Okay, so you never had to leave London. You, you you worked from home the whole time. Yes. From your parents' flat. Flat? House. 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 house in, when we were living at that time in Neesden. In Neesden. Okay, so you've been in London the whole time. You've never really moved out of London. Which except, is, except when we were evacuated for short periods of time. Where were you evacuated to? Oh, yes. Uh, Luton, Hemel Hampstead. Uh, Leeds, Clitheroe. As I said, we followed our fa- my father around. Uh, again, that must have been quite uh, quite an experience. Certainly, going up as far as far north as Leeds and Clitheroe, um, very different from from London today as they probably were all those years ago. So you studied, you became a solicitor. What what age did you qualify as a solicitor? Twenty one. Twenty one. That is extremely young. I I was at that time, as I think you said, the youngest to qualify. At that time. Well, that that in itself is uh, a remarkable achievement. And 
what what do you put that down to? Was that just sheer determination, or is that something you always wanted to do? Become a lawyer? Just working hard. It was extremely tough studying all that time. Six months for the intermediate, six months for the final. I did a correspondence course in the meantime to make sure I was kept up to date, and I suppose patting myself on the back. It was sheer hard work. Yeah, well, you don't qualify as a solicitor without without hard work, and that's. As I say, a remarkable achievement um, to do it so young uh, and from, as I say, from that upbringing, which I, I don't know how how it was funded. Did, it, did they, your parents fund you or did you get a grant or how did, it, how did it work in those days? I got a grant. You got a grant. Okay. So you joined the practice, which was called William Fox & Co. And there you remained for your entire working career, um, working with your the senior partner at the time, I think. Willie Fox. Correct. He himself was a, an interesting character. Yes. Involved in all sorts of things, including the water rats. I think he was heavily involved in. Yes, he was the honorary solicitor for the water rats, G-O-W-R. And you had, how many years were you in practice? From 1957-ish, can't remember precisely, to the year 2000. To year 2000, 57 to 2000, that's 43 years, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's without the five years articles prior. Plus five years, so 47 as a qualified solicitor, plus several years prior as a trainee article part. So that's a long time practicing and an amazing longevity working with a single practice. I mean, many people today would give their eye teeth to work for the same company from the day they start to the day they finish. But equally, I can imagine it has some drawbacks working day in, day out with the (laughs) the same person. But at least you had stability, I suppose, of sorts. Although I don't know, you tell me, was it was it stressful? At times it was stressful. Other times, as you say, it has stability. So you take the good with the bad. And you were made a partner there. I was made a partner fairly shortly after I qualified. About ni- yeah, nineteen fifty-eight, I think. So rising up the the ranks very rapidly. And what? Were the areas of law that you specialise in? Because I believe you you started off doing a cross section of practice, but then I think you focus more specifically in a given area. Well, I covered everything in my career from litigation, crime, conveyancing, commercial law, the lot. So, talking of crime, any particular cases of note that stand out? There was there was one that stood out in, stands out in my memory. It was a murder case which I remember quite vividly because on my way to the office on that particular day, I was reading the newspaper and the headlines were all about this murder case. And when I got into the office, we received a phone call asking if we would take instructions. So yeah, it was quite quite a big thing for us at that time. So it was a well-known case, widely publicised at the time. It was indeed, yes. Yeah. Can you say who it was? I can remember part of it. The name the the clients i don't think i'd like to mention the names but they were maltese people okay uh, <laughs> enough said i think probably. who were accused <laughs> of murdering a gangster okay in maid of ale okay i think the, the maltese maltese had a bit of a reputation i think for a gangster gangsterism in in london around about that time so you must have you, so i think the point i'm trying to make is you, you came across some fascinating and interesting personalities yourself during your career Certainly did, yes, yes. Both in terms of your your clients and the wider people you you acted for, you acted for a range of people from 
royalty, I think, right through to you were heavily involved with the police as well, weren't you? Yes, one of our long-standing clients was the Metropolitan Police Federation, from whom we received many, many uh, instructions to act for their policemen. So the federation was what, like their um, un- sort of un- trade union, yeah, yeah. So they're like their representation, their 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 body that represented them. And I think you enjoyed their Christmas parties quite a bit, didn't you? I seem to remember you coming home once or twice with ruddy cheeks. <laughs> Too much to drink. I'm yes. not saying you were. But a I drinker. came home on the underground. <laughs> well, we, of course, you wouldn't drive, obviously. That would be frowned upon. Uh, and I know you're not a big drinker. I don't know if you were then, but yeah, I think you enjoyed a party at Christmas with your clients in those days, which is fine. So how did that fit in with when you married mum, Marilyn, your wife, who I'm delighted to say you're still married to after how many years it's now? be 58 years next month. 58 years next month. That's wonderful, obviously, for, for, you, for you and for me and the, the wider family. So you were a trainee solicitor, I think, when you met and married mum, or had you just qualified? Now you're testing my memory. Um, it was, I think it was just about the time I was rating my results of the final exam that I met your mother, and um, shortly after I qualified... And um, not long after that, we got engaged. That was about 1957, and in 1959, we were married. 1959. December the 20th, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. So you got your another anniversary, which we celebrate with glee every year. So you married mum, you became a practicing solicitor, you became a partner in a in a well-established, successful firm in, in central London. Maddox Street, I think, was the first off Oxford Street. Yes, it was. Off yeah. Regent Street, yeah. I beg your pardon, off Regent Street. Yeah. Above the offices of, uh, above the, offices of Her- the famous Herbert Long, if I'm not mistaken. No, yeah. not quite correct. Not quite correct. We were above the offices of the Bradford Permanent Building Society, as it was then. It's changed hands many times. And Herbert Long, the film producer's director, had an office in the same building, yes. He was... I think he became, he was very famous as a movie star back in the day. He, he was, yeah. He became, yeah. I think, very well known for his part with the Pink Panther films with uh, Inspector Clouseau. That's correct, yeah. yes. Yeah. And obviously, when you were there, I remember going up to see you and you taking us out for lunch to, um, was it Selfridges? I can't remember. You used to take us somewhere for lunch. It was in it, it was in Regent Street. Then the name will come Hamleys. to me. Hamleys. No, Hamleys no. is a toy store. Yeah. Uh, the name of the oh, it, it will come to me shortly. I can't. I can't remember. It's so many years yeah, ago. I just remember coming up. Mum bringing me up to see you on the train, and you taking us out for lunch. And it was a big deal for us in those days, which was fantastic. So I've got a bit ahead of myself because I, I'm I'm on the scene here, but clearly I need to go back a step because you then obviously felt comfortable enough to start rearing a family. So my sister Lorraine arrived on the scene in 1961, if I'm not mistaken. 10th of December, 10th of December 1961. Yeah. 1961. Okay, so December became a popular time for anniversaries and birthdays. And um, that was obviously a, a great joy for you. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Our first child, yes. The eldest, and I... And the, I've only got one sister and one sibling, and that's uh, my sister Lorraine. And then I came along two and a half years later in 1964, May the 2nd, for anyone who wants to uh, send me a a birthday card, an early birthday card, that'll be well received. So we're going to sort of move fast forward. It's it's difficult to condense 80 plus years of a life into into a podcast, but 
I want to move on to what is probably the most important phase of your life, I guess, in many respects, certainly the phase, I guess, that's had the most impact on you and mum and the family and the wider public, which is what the purpose uh, the purpose of the podcast here today is because not a lot of people will understand i mean people close to you will know what you've done and what you've achieved in the charitable circles but i want to i want to bring this out and obviously some of this might be painful and emotional but nonetheless i think it's important to to tell this story and that's what we're all about here on on your london legacy this is the this is the crucial part so lorraine was born in 1961 to all intents and purposes, had a relatively normal, healthy, happy upbringing. Until she was 17, I can remember the month and the year until March 1979. Okay, so till March 1979, but she went to, I mean, you you were obviously making a a decent living. You sent her to a, a good private school, Rosary Priory. She had friends and nothing particular was abnormal, would you say? I would confirm that definitely. Her illness came out of the blue. Okay, so you've, you've mentioned her illness, which is of the, the, the critical part. I suppose the watershed in many respects of your life. You, your life took a different course from that point, I think it's probably fair to say. It did, and all, all our lives all, did. All our lives Including did. yours. Yeah. It, that's true. I want to focus on. <laughs> I want to focus on you. This is your London legacy, but it obviously did have an impact on on all our lives and continue continues to do so. So she had a. She was a happy teenager. She had friends. She went out. She went partying. She had boyfriends. In fact, she had many boyfriends queuing up at the door. But she was a very good looking, attractive girl. Well, at the time she became ill, she had one serious boyfriend, and. Uh genuinely believe that it hadn't been for her illness it might have been a permanent relationship yeah so your recollection may well be different from mine but my recollection is that one sunday i think you said in 1979 march 79 march 79 we as a family the four of us you lorraine and mum so the four of us were sitting down one sunday having lunch and my recollection is that Lorraine, we'd had lunch, or we're finishing lunch, and Lorraine disappeared upstairs to her bedroom. At the time, we were living in uh, in Edgware. She disappeared up to her bedroom, and I think I followed up, followed on shortly after. I don't know exactly the, the, the timings of it all. And I recall vaguely seeing Lorraine or hearing Lorraine crying uncontrollably and coming down to tell you that Lorraine wasn't well. I don't know if you're, or wasn't feeling well, or I don't know if your recollection is along those lines, or? Pretty much the same, and we... Well, obviously very distressed us here in that condition. Didn't know what it was all about. And there was nothing prior to this incident that gave you or I or mum any cause for concern about anything at all? None. Health-wise at all? None at that particular time, no. So there we are, normal family of four, you know, in northwest London, had our Sunday lunch, go upstairs, and there's Lorraine, 16, how old? 16 and a half? 17. 17 years old, sobbing her heart out, crying hysterically, can't breathe having uh, what do you call it when you can't breathe um hyperventilating hyperventilating i think was the expression and that was my earliest my first recollection of lorraine becoming ill yes right that's right so what what was going through your mind at that time if you can cast your mind back that many years i mean it's obviously a blur now with the passage of time but what, what did you think well we've got to get to the bottom of it and find out what's causing her to be like that so we called a very close friend of ours who was a 
general physician lived not far away, and he came over, examined her, and said we must take her to a neurologist because he couldn't find anything specific. Uh, and the thoughts were going through his mind and our mind. Was it something like meningitis? Was it a tumour? Because she was very stiff in her neck and wouldn't turn round to face us. And we then proceeded along those lines of visiting a neurologist until physical symptoms were ruled out. You see, I don't, I don't remember that stiffness in the neck, but then I don't suppose, I, I, you know, I would remember specifics. I would have been, she was 17, I would have been 14, I suppose, at the time, 14, 15 at the time. So what, what was the diagnosis? What was the first diagnosis you were told and what was the prognosis? There was no diagnosis, a physical diagnosis. As I said, that was ruled out. And um, we, it was suggested, I can't remember by whom, that we take her to see her, a, a juvenile psychiatrist which we did the diagnosis at that time was endogenous depression which means depression from no known source why would they say depression i mean what what were the symptoms she was exhibiting at that time aside from her initial breakdown if you like all she wanted to do after the initial shock was to talk and sometimes i could sit up right through the night and talk with her, and she would raise all sorts of different subjects. As you say, it was, it's a bit of a blur now, but it seemed that she was depressed, and we were not surprised at the diagnosis that was given by this psychiatrist. But then, unfortunately, there were many other diagnoses, such as identity crisis, personality disorder. Uh, all coming back to me now, yeah. And uh, it took years until... A specific correct diagnosis was made several years later. And had you had any prior experience of mental health firsthand before? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. So you're literally thrown in at the deep end with your daughter. Out the blue, she becomes ill, no prior experience of mental health, and they're very much in the hands of the experts. Yes. So-called experts, anyway. Yes, yes. And I suppose there were many so-called experts and misdiagnoses uh, along the way. So how many years was it? I mean, what, what was the process you got because you went from doctor to doctor to doctor being passed, I suppose, from one to the other, referred from one to the other. Correct. Over the first few years. What, how did the symptoms sort of manifest? How did they develop in the, in the, in the early years? What, what was it that changed from, I now recall you saying, staying up all night talking into, into the night with her. I do have recollections of that now. Were the bizarre behaviour at that time? We'll come on to more bizarre behaviour, you know, more recent times, but what was going on The then? bizarre behaviour came about shortly after the diagnosis of identity crisis and personality disorder, and we were advised to place her in a local psychiatric clinic, which was, as it turns out, not a good idea, because before our very eyes... She changed her personality completely and dressed almost like a punk at that time. Okay. Uh, dressing like a punk is not necessarily a... No. Although it we, wasn't like Lorraine, I have to say. She was not a punk. She was immaculate in her dress. Ab- absolutely. It was uh, quite a t- difference. Yeah. But on top of that, she did nothing but scream and scream whenever we visited her. And it was at that time her boyfriend, whom I mentioned earlier, 
said he couldn't cope with it any longer and he would have to stay away. Now, obviously, mental health, the symptoms of mental health has that impact on people in the the close circle who can't cope with the symptoms and don't know how to deal with it. And so it does push a lot of people away, apart from the, the very, very close uh, friends and family. So how, how, was that, how did that impact you? Because you're obviously working as a solicitor, you're trying to earn a living, you're trying to keep down, you know, a good job as a partner in a law firm. How was this impacting you? It had a very difficult impact on my uh, working life because I never knew for many years at any one time I'd receive a phone call from my daughter or from my wife saying there's an issue, there's a problem, can you come right away? And of course I had to drop what I was doing and uh, yeah, my work was affected. So the initial diagnoses were incorrect or not accurate at any rate to start with. At what point in Lorraine's illness do you think she, when did she get a diagnosis that you think was accurate? Not for several years. That's why these days it is strongly believed that early diagnosis, early intervention is greatly important, almost vital. But in Lorraine's case, it didn't come for several years. As I said, she started becoming ill in 1979, and it wasn't until the 80s, 83 or 4, even later, 86 maybe, that we got a firm diagnosis of schizophrenia. So in the 80s, mental health in general was a a big taboo, like cancer was the big C prior to that. Schizophrenia as a subset, if you like, of mental health ailments, is an even bigger no-no to talk about. Yes, it it was quite weird because having had so many wrong diagnoses, we felt, as a funny word to use, almost relieved when we were told it was schizophrenia, but yet horrified at the same time because we knew how serious a mental illness it was and is. And having got that diagnosis, I suppose that having had several years leading up to that diagnosis of hell and hardship, you got that diagnosis that comes with a bit of a bombshell, although it's a relief to get a diagnosis. But then you know, crap, I've got, she's got, Lorraine's got, we've all got years ahead of us of hardship and heartache and poor health. Yes. Schizophrenia has got a bad rap, obviously, over, over the years because it's not a widely, wasn't, until quite recently, a widely understood sort of ailment or mental health illness. Has that eased, do you think, at all? Do you, do you think it's not more accepted now in wider society? That's a hard one to answer. I believe that it is more well known, but I would say it is not accepted any more than it was then. You only have to look at the papers and see how they talk about people with mental illness and schizophrenia, split personality, which it is not. We we, we know that now. So just for, for the listeners, what is schizophrenia or what is the type of schizophrenia that Lorraine has? She has got thought disorder. She hears voices which to her are very real, but to people outside her, they have obviously can't hear them and they're unreal to the wider public. She has delusions, she has paranoia, and it distresses her greatly and even prevents her from sleeping. 
So when you got the diagnosis of schizophrenia, what was the prognosis and what was the offered solutions in terms of care, hospitalisation? What what was on offer? We're talking about the 80s now, aren't we? We are, yeah, yeah. yeah. There wasn't much on offer at all that I can think of. In fact, it was more or less a self-help situation. We immediately got in touch with the only organisation or charity that we had heard of called, at that time, Schizophrenia National Emergency. It's now called Rethink Mental Illness. So that was known as SANE, colloquially. No, no, no. No? SANE was a separate entity. Oh, SANE was a separate entity. Okay. Um, We joined Schizophrenia National Emergency, as I said, now called Rethink. And after a little while, my wife, Marilyn, became a member of the Council of Trustees, and I became... And she was so for four years, and I became a member of the Medico-Legal Committee, which lasted for eight years. And we wanted to know as much as possible about schizophrenia, and we did. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, the 80s was the time generally when it was the political movement within the mental health sector was what they call care in the community, round about that time, where they were closing mental hospitals that came a bit later. That was a bit later. That was late 80s, early 90s. In 1986, we met a woman called Marjorie Wallace, who approached us to do an article in the Times called The, um, the Forgotten Illness. And she wanted Lorraine to be a, one of the subjects of that series of articles. And um, she subsequently became the chief executive of the charity you mentioned called SANE. Which stood for Schizophrenia... Schizophrenia National Emergency. National Emergency. So yeah. that's what developed out of yeah. the previous yes, charity. Yes, Okay. So this was the time, your fledgling career, I suppose, in charity work within the mental health sector, roundabout. Yes, because not only did she do this article in the Times, but also she arranged for us to participate in a BBC television programme about mental illness and we got more and more involved and in the late 1980s we decided to do something about it ourselves and the two of us my wife and I and another couple whose son also suffered from the same illness I wrote an article in the Jewish Chronicle in the Jewish Chronicle about the illness and the fact that there was very little or anything out there in the community to help and we got hundreds of replies, hundreds. Wow, that's that's amazing. And I mean, in a, in a time where there was you know no social media to speak of and no emails to get sort of written correspondence from people, must have been amazing. It was, and we decided there and then to form our own charity, which we called Jamie, an acronym for Jewish Association for Mental Illness, which has now been going for over 25 well, the, years. Well, now you come to the crux of um, your your legacy and your, your London legacy. And this, this is what I want to spend a little bit of time on, if, uh, if you don't mind. So out of, because I want to understand your mindset, because every, everybody is different. Now, there's many people in this world who would have a problem a crisis, a difficulty. In this case, this was a, a problem and a, and a daily crisis going on for, for several years up until this point with daily crises. Many people who would not know what to do or if they knew what to do, they wouldn't have the wherewithal or, or, or the spirit to do something about it. But 
from our front living room, I believe, you and mum and this other couple, parents of another sufferer, set about doing something about it and creating from nothing, if you like, a charity called Jamie, which you've alluded to, to help Lorraine and fellow sufferers. Correct. So you obviously specifically wanted help for your children, but beyond that, you decided that there wasn't a resource out there. I think around about that time, uh, psychiatric patients were being pushed out from closing from closing um, psychiatric institutions all over London and the country as a whole. It was it was a it was a policy, a government policy, to shut down institutions. It was called care in the community. Others called it decanting the mentally ill onto the streets. And it's a problem that, in many respects, has never fully been resolved or understood since because many of these people became homeless, um, had nowhere to go, and have suffered a life of, you know, of hardship ever ever since, unless they've been fortunate enough to come to get some care. And a lot of these hospitals were sold off to property developers to become blocks of flats and luxury apartments and the like. So that in itself is something quite shocking. But at that time, you took it upon yourself with this other couple to set up Jamie, Jewish Association for the Mentally Ill. So just talk me through that process. How, how did that start? What, what, did you, what were your earliest memories of setting that up and how it developed? Because you had nothing really, did you? No, out of the people that approached us from the article in the newspaper, we formed a, a committee and we met in our homes to start with. And this was 1989. And uh, we decided that there were three things we wanted to do we wanted to find a home for our children to live in a permanent home we wanted to bring about day centers where they could go during the day and also to ensure that they had what is still called befrienders so that they could have somebody to meet uh, from time to time on their birthdays or have a cup of coffee from occasionally because they find it very, very difficult to form friendships. Those were the three objectives we wanted to achieve. I think it's also important to get across the fact that sufferers of schizophrenia and other sort of similar mental illnesses often have very bizarre behaviour, which makes it nigh and impossible to live within a normal sort of family environment. So many times they would be institutionalised but they closed the hospitals down, so they had nowhere to go. So you were, you were trying to find a solution to, to that problem. Indeed. In fact, Lorraine was in and out of various institutions, hospitals, clinics. So can you give us some specific examples of the sort of places she frequented? Well, she, she was either a voluntary patient or a compulsory patient under section of the Mental Health Act on many occasions, to different large institutions, as you said, now closed, or to other less formal places where we hoped and thought that she might be helped. So how does one get sectioned? What do you have to do to get sectioned under the Mental Health Act? You have to be a danger to yourself or others. Basically, that's the analysis of the definition in the Mental Health Act. Uh, but I could go into it in much more depth. That's the broad legal that's definition. That's the broad legal definition, yeah. a danger to yourself or others. And in those circumstances when that's a judge to have happened, then you're taken in, if you like, against your will. Or, 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 compulsory, or, or, as I yeah, said, compulsory. compulsory yeah, yeah. into an institution, a care home, or whatever, a hospital, where they can, in theory, impose 
medication against against the patient's will. Because oftentimes, schizophrenics, sufferers of schizophrenia, don't have the wherewithal to take medication themselves, or they refuse it. That's and right. And therefore, yes, yes. they just go on a spiral of poor, you know, worsening behaviour. So, you set up this charity, and how how did, how did it grow? How how did you develop it from literally, as I say, the front living room of our, you know, and 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 meeting meeting in people's houses? How did it develop to what it is today? And we'll come on to say what you've achieved today, because that that's what we're all about. Well, what you're all about. It was, I don't know. It was just like a snowball with people wanting to join our group. And the first thing we had to do, of course, was to get some income. And we decided to rent or take on license a charity shop, an empty shop where the landlord would want some rent in Golders Green. And um, that was our only source of income at that time. And it enabled us to start some day centers in three different venues and from there we just grew and grew like an acorn into an oak tree well it's quite remarkable what you've grown and grown today so the starting point was 19 the starting point unofficially was 1989 we registered ourselves as a charity in 1991 91 and you're now obviously still going as we had your annual dinner only a couple of weeks ago i think it was um which was the biggest and the most successful one so far. So I think it's important to say that whilst you're doing your 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 set up the charity, you're running a charity, you're running a business, and all the while you've got Lorraine in the background and assuming you've got me of a lesser <laughs> lesser concern toodling along in the background with my schooling and what have you. But you've got Lorraine is your big concern because of her her serious health. What were the sort of bizarre behaviours she was exhibiting? round about this time i mean i can remember incidences for example laying down in the street outside the house yes there was another incident where she kicked a plate glass window in golders green and opened her leg up from the ankle to the thigh and uh sort of incidents like that was that the i mean there was one occasion at least as i recall she spent a night in a prison cell uh yes she did and not for doing anything specifically criminal but because i think they didn't quite know what to do with her in those days. Well, the police played a very important part in those days and still do. They took her to the uh, uh, prison cell as a place of safety under the, under a section of the Mental Health Act. And again, believe it or not, it's a relief to know where your child is rather than wandering the streets. No, for sure. You'd rather her in a safe and secure in four walls, albeit, um, you know, a, a police station cell. At least she's, she is secure safe, and yeah. safe from harms, you know, any harm that can come to her or whoever it is, because it's not unusual for that sort of set of circumstances to occur. So all this is going on. You're running a business. You're driving this charity forward. It must have been tough. It must have been extremely tough. tough for you. In fact, one psychiatrist warned us that it is very common and frequent for married couples to split up because one or other of the partners can't cope with it. It made us stronger, in I, fact. I was going to say, clearly the complete opposite happened yes, with you, Mum, yes. because it's made you stronger and tighter than ever. Uh, and obviously I'm delighted to so say you're, you're married 50, how many years? years 50, 58 years. 58 years. Uh, 58 years this December or 59? This December. This December. So we all go out and celebrate that at our favourite restaurant. So let's talk a bit about Jamie, because we understand now, or the listeners will understand a bit about what you were going through and a little bit about the 
the mental health problems of someone like Lorraine. How has Jamie developed over, over the years? We'll have to go back a little bit, not a lot. Because of her illness, Lorraine, as I said before, was in and out of different institutions. And in 1988, she was taken from a place in Southall, a home for the homeless, believe it or not, where we had to go searching for her. And she was taken into Northwick Park Hospital under a wonderful psychiatrist called Tim Crow, whom we're now very friendly with. And she was a permanent patient, inpatient there for three years. Three years. That's a hell of a long time to be against her will, sectioned there. Yes. So yes, she, she was, was under section. She, she was, yes. So she had no choice in the matter. This is obviously for her own good, as it were, for her own protection and health. But nonetheless, she was on a secure ward. Yes. In a psychiatric ward in an NHS hospital in north of London. Yeah. North, of, yeah. north London, where she was for three years. Yes. Continuously. Continuously. I mean, that it bring, brings back all sorts of uh, memories for me, as I'm sure it does for you. How, how did that? How did that? How was that for you? <laughs> That's a stupid question, but how, how, how did you and Mum feel and get through that? Horrendous, because at one time a psychiatrist—I can't remember if it was Tim Crow or not—because it's a long time ago—told us that she would become a patient, a, a patient in the back ward of a mental hospital for the rest of her life. But after a while, after a couple of years, in fact, she was put on a different medication which helped her considerably. And at the end of three years, she was discharged. And that was a medication she was on for many years? She was on it for, until quite recently, for 25 plus years. Yeah. So that's another story we, we may or may not touch on, um, bringing it sort of right up to date. But um, suffice it to say, she's on a, a cocktail of many, many pills and injections and daily, you know, a whole concoction of things which would knock most horses out cold really yes yes but um it helped her considerably in so far as we were able to even take her abroad on holiday but nevertheless she was still displaying bizarre behaviors and the symptoms of schizophrenia so let's sort of fast forward uh, a bit so jamie set up you've done some really good work let's talk about what it's become now i mean it's actually gone on a very steep growth curve in the last couple of years i believe hasn't it particularly in the last um four years yeah four years so what have you got now what does what does jamie offer as a charity now I mean, let, let's let's go back to the first milestone well the first milestone was not the one we set out to achieve the first one we wanted to achieve was a, a permanent home for people of in, suffering from mental illness but that was much harder to achieve than setting up day centres. It took us virtually 12 to 13 years to raise the finance to buy a residential home where Lorraine has been living since it was built. This was to build from scratch? Oh yeah. A residential home. This wasn't wasn't a property you bought off the shelf. This was one that you built brick by brick or had built brick by brick. Absolutely. In fact, there are photographs of Marilyn laying the foundations. Yes. Yeah. I'm just trying to get the, the picture across to uh, to our, our listeners. 
well, you know, how it was because you, you had this vision of building this home for sufferers to live in. Absolutely. Where they couldn't yeah. live at home and needed somewhere to be cared for 20, 24 7. That is where Lorraine has been living for the last how many years, did you say? Well, first of all, when she came out of hospital in 1991, she came to live with us for a year or more. And then we came across a hostel in um, Bronsbury, also northwest London, Matesbury Road, where she lived for a few years whilst we were achieving our objective of building a new residential home from scratch. So so how many years, how old is the building now? The building now is 2001, 16 years. 16 years. So 16 years ago, brand new, modern, all singing, all dancing home was built for 15 15 residents of varying ages but mostly in a sort of 18 to 35 18 to 35 sort of bracket Lorraine's lived there from day one and I think several other most most of the residents residents have have lived there from day one one or two have come and gone and unfortunately have moved on uh, in other ways but it's a place where they are cared for 24 7 round the clock care so they get their medication they get their food they get activities throughout the day they can live an independent so far as they can an independent yes life absolutely yeah okay so what are the other sort of things that you've that jamie has achieved through your involvement well from a small charity to um living on the income of one charity shop we gradually built up to acquire from an associate introduced to us a day centre on a long-term lease. I think it was for 21 years. So instead of having three different venues, there was just one standalone centre where they could all visit as many times as they liked during the week. So that was two objectives that we achieved, a day centre and a residential home. And the third objective of professional, if you like, uh, befriender came along later. And uh, so we achieved all our objectives. But now that we've grown so large we have 52 members of staff which are needed because it's a people service we don't provide anything other than i think just just say take a pause there and appreciate you've now got 52 people 52 members of staff who work for jamie yeah i i I find that incredible i think i think you are sometimes a little bit what's the word self-deprecating a bit you don't i don't sometimes i don't think you appreciate what you and mum and mum is MBE for the services she's done with Jamie. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. Charity, not just Jamie, but you know, mental health provision as well. I don't think you and mum sometimes appreciate what you've achieved from nothing to now have. You've got a day centre. You've got a, a home where people live. You've got a shop, a coffee shop which sells food and training. You've got respite care. You've got outreach workers. You've got as you say, 52 members of staff. And at the dinner the other night, I can't remember what the figures were, how many thousands of people go through the Jamie charity every year. About 1,300 to 1,500 a year. That's individual. In, in the community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's individuals. That's not the, the, the touches each person has within the process. We've not grown away from, because we've still got four day centres um, for the core people who are long-term sufferers of mental illness, but we've grown into a an organization which looks after people in the community rather than looking after a specific building we'd like to look after the people themselves 
who a lot of whom don't like going to a day center they don't like being tainted with the fact that they may be going to a center for mentally ill people no well that's that's understandable and in some respects that's probably not a bad thing from their point of view no not at all you took over jamie in fact took over the mental health provision from another much larger charity a few years ago because they perceived you were doing a far superior job we did indeed we took on a chief executive seven or eight years ago may even be longer whose enthusiasm has been remarkable and four years ago as you said we it's almost like a reverse takeover but money wasn't involved we took over all the mental health provision in the community that they had and merged it with our own and immediately our services and provision of care became much larger so basically you'd out you'd outgrown your original your, your original organization because your, your your service was so much in demand and so and perceived as being such a good and valuable service that you had this if you like merger and reverse takeover from a much larger charity much more established and better funded charity shall we say rather than a wealthy charity a better funded charity so it must be an amazing feeling to think that jamie from nothing is now helping well over a thousand sufferers of varying mental health disorders if you like ailments a year you say we don't seem to show anything about our achievement achievements but it's acknowledging the fact that we are exceptionally proud of our achievements and sometimes when we look at it and think about it and talk about it it's almost numbing to think that we've grown this far and helping so many people yeah i think the point I'm probably trying to say is your personality is not a, a I'm the big I am. You're a, a, an understated sort of guy, if yeah. I can put it that way. You don't blow your own trumpet. You don't go and sell your achievements, whatever, you know, what you perceive to be your achievements. Having said that, you have been recognized yourself, I think, for for a couple of lifetime achievement awards for your services too charity mental health charity yeah it was the uh, jewish volunteer network yes yes but it was a lifetime achievement award it wasn't just a one-off thing it was the uh, top yeah, award. Li- life, lifetime achievement yeah, award yeah because yeah. i remember going with you to the um awards. You call it? the award cert ceremony which was held in front of several hundred people yeah so and that was the award for all the charities across the sector so that's not no, no mean feat and as i said mum is also being awarded the MBE for her services. And that was also a marvellous occasion going up to Buckingham Palace with you and uh, my wife, Solly. And I think Lorraine was able Lorraine to come with able, us. Fortunately, Lorraine was able to come with us on that which day. Which was quite yeah, remarkable. Yeah. On that particular day, she came with us and sat fairly quietly. Yes, yes, yes. To watch uh, Prince Charlie Boy or Mum telling Charlie what she thought of <laughs> <laughs> Mum not being one uh, shy coming forward. So it's, it's, it, I think it's a remarkable story. And I think it's a perfect story to start off your London Legacy podcast because when I was going down I drew up a a list of people to speak to as I hopefully grow the podcast has become as successful as Jamie the charity I had a whole list of people well known and not well known because what I want to do is talk to people and get their stories as I say it's telling the timeless stories of London's hidden personalities because there's many people in London who do things and achieve things and People don't know about it until they stumble across it or have need for a service such as Jamie. They they wouldn't dream about it. But you and Mum and the other 
co-founder members and the people who are driving the charity forward today have done a, a, a remarkable thing. It's not against the odds, but it's a it's fighting an uphill battle all the way, isn't it? It's all, all the time. It, yes, it's yes. running in sand or in treacle, whatever you want. As I say, raising a young family, you know, keeping a profession down, keeping a marriage going and strong, earning a living, you know, dealing with the the day to day mental health issues and growing a charity from nothing is is quite remarkable so we're going to wind up now (laughs) i don't know if you want to say anything particular about you know your your recollections or feelings or emotions about what you've done and what you've what you've achieved as i said before we're extremely proud of what we've achieved but regrettably unfortunately our daughter has become quite severely ill again in the last 18 months to two years because the medication she was on which is worldwide known to help sufferers who are resistant normally resistant to medication she had to be taken off of it because it affected her blood and the manufacturers would not allow her prescription to continue and since then the psychiatric services have tried all sorts of concoctions to replace that medication and i must say not very successfully so her condition has deteriorated quite considerably and we have not been able to do the things we have been doing for many years i.e take her on short holidays or on trips to restaurants theaters and her life our life and indeed your life have all changed again so it's almost reverted back to the late 1980s for us in particular but i have to say that despite what the government says about mental health being recognized more widely it is not seen by the resources being provided and that's probably a topic, a wider topic for, for another conversation. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. um, maybe we'll get you back here on another occasion. We can talk more widely about mental health in the community and how hopefully uh, things are improving, although um, proof of the pudding will be in the eating, as they say. But what you have achieved is is remarkable. Your legacy to, and it's predominantly in the London area, I believe, Yes. Uh, although you have outreach probably a bit outside, but it's mostly in the London region. So you're born and brought up in London. We've been born and brought up in London. What you've done in terms of the legacy for mental health sufferers is in London. And therefore, I could think of no finer guest to have on for my first podcast than my dad, Alan Lazarus. And I'm very proud to call you my dad. So thank you very much for being here and please god you'll come again next time thank you very much very pleased to be the first quote guinea pig unquote and i'm very proud that you are my son and i hope this is very successful for you thank you very much